Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Well, if you're kind of new to our church, let me just catch you up on what we've been doing. I've been in the middle of a sermon series called True Community. And it's acknowledging the fact that um, we do this thing called church together. We're not in our underwear on the Internet watching this online, but we're physically in this place. And it's a reminder every Sunday that God's plan for the church is not isolated individuals, but a real family, a true community of people. And when we achieve that, when we get together at that level, we begin to understand and experience the fullness of what God planned when he invented the idea of the church. And you know that when you've been a part of a church and that kind of community hasn't happened, where you feel really just like you're in a crowd with a bunch of other people, but you don't feel connected, that you walk away every Sunday saying, well, maybe, obviously, you know, the sermon was awesome, you know, but uh, maybe you feel like, I was okay, the music was good, the kids, but I just don't feel like it's what my heart is longing for. And that's the marvelous thing about the church is you could have an amazing connection with God, but without a parallel amazing connection with others, you don't feel fully satisfied in what the body of Christ is. So, uh, so far in the series, we've been looking at some of the positive building blocks, things that uh, we want to affirm and value that build true community. We've been talking about identifying this, this um, epidemic of loneliness in America and in the entire Western world, we've been talking about how God loves to see us. He finds it pleasant when we live together in unity and how he anoints our ministry, how, how he blesses what we do. So we've been looking at all these different things, these aspects of building true community. But today I want to turn our attention on something that actually breaks community apart. I want to raise awareness about and teach on something that will help us avoid one of the common pitfalls that erodes community among us, okay? Um, One of the problems with a series like True Community is that here in this place, in this sort of idealized world of the church, everything for a moment, for like an hour, can be forgotten, and we listen to God's word, and it begins to speak to us, stir something in us, and we say, you know, I want that. I like what God's word is saying. I'm kind of inspired, and sometimes, not every week, But sometimes, I know this happens, you walk away from church with this resolve, I'm going to make a difference. I want to to be different. I want the life that God's word just described and pictured for me. Have you ever had that experience? I really hope so. I'm quitting my job if you never have. I mean, have you ever had the experience of being at church and thinking, that's actually what I want, and for the moment... You feel an upsurge of hope, of possibility. Like, you know, maybe it's possible that even my messed up life at home can be renewed. That even my fractured family can experience community again. That maybe that estranged old friend that I don't even talk to anymore, maybe it's possible that I might just call her and she might say, oh my goodness, you've been on my heart lately. It's so good to be reunited. And you're thinking that. But then here's the problem. You walk out of the idealized reality of church into the real world. 
And while your heart is floating, while you are inspired and filled with hope and vision and possibility, you return to a person, to a world, a family that maybe wasn't here in this room with you, that didn't catch the fever or see the vision. And so here you are, renewed on the inside, but the people you share life with aren't on the same page. You know what I'm talking about? And so in your mind, maybe it's just me. This happens to me all the time. I'm listening to something. I'm getting inspired. And I picture in my mind a scenario playing out. I'm going to call them. And then they're going to be like, oh, my goodness. And they're going to call me back. And then we're going to start a a, a new friendship again. And, And you picture it. And so you go out intending to make a change. Maybe you go out and do something really loving and selfless and sacrificial for this person that you want to repair your relationship with. And you do it and you're thinking, oh, this is good. I'm on a roll. And then, completely unacknowledged. You've been planning it. You really laid it out there. And it's like nothing even happened. Maybe you decide, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to be passive aggressive. I'm just going to absorb the wound and be forgiving. And you do it thinking that person's going to be like, oh, you know, you're just so gracious. You're so patient. I feel guilty mistreating you like this. But instead, they just keep doing it. Ah, oh, they're a pushover, a pincushion. I can kick them anytime I want. They don't fight back. And you just seethe inside. You're like, this is hard. I wanted to be the one who absorbs the wound. But every time I do it, you get more and more presumptuous and hard-hearted. Maybe you work really hard at changing one of your faults. You know this is a weakness for you. It irritates the people around you. But then after you make a little progress, there's no recognition. So what? Big deal. You want a cookie? So you made a little baby step. I want you to be all the way. And as you try to move forward, it's as if the people around you grab you with their hooks and pull you back. Because no, no, you don't. You don't get to change. You don't get to have a better life, a new life. You're this person. You're stuck here. Don't even act like you're somebody who's gracious and patient. We know who you are. Stop, stop playing. Stop pretending. And, and, you know, you start to want to move forward and you get pulled back into conflict and pain by others. Maybe that's why the French existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. I don't agree with this philosophy. I don't think he meant quite what I mean when I say it, but in a way, we all discover that experientially. Change, life, community would be so much easier if it weren't for the other people. But by definition, that doesn't make sense, right? Because community is other people. And so we know this. If we want to build community, if we want to walk away from God's word, inspire to be different, we're not going to do it sliding down a greased hill. You're not going to renew your marriage or your friendships or repair broken families by sliding into it easily. It's going to be an uphill, friction-filled climb all the way because other people won't always be on the same page as you. Conflict is a reality that is inescapable in a broken, sin-scarred world. Now, here's the thing, then. If you live in a world like that and you want what's better than the lowest common denominator, you're going to experience frustration. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience anger. Those things are inevitable parts of living with other people. 
And can I just be honest? Even if you didn't live with other people, if you were on an island, you'd find ways to get mad at yourself, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm, I'm, half the time, I'm most angry at me. I'm not really often angry at you guys. I'm mad at myself. So it's like even in a community of one, I can't seem to build that. How many of you feel totally whole and content and perfect within yourselves? And so if living life in this broken world means that anger is a part of it, an inescapable part of it, we have to learn how to deal with that anger if we're ever going to have a hope of building community. So the title of the message is Proper Ventilation. I, I just picked that title because I've been hearing the word vent a lot. And I, I get this idea that anger builds up pressure. And you know how pressure works. If you keep increasing pressure in a closed system, what's going to happen? Kaboom! You can't just keep building up pressure with no outlet, no ventilation, and expect no explosion. It's going to happen. And so we want to talk about how to properly ventilate that pressure that builds up every time we try to live Godward lives in a godless world, even with people who want God but can't seem to find their way to him on a regular basis. I'm drawing from two passages that I think are almost impossible to read separately because they draw so closely off of one another and help us to understand. One passage helps us to understand the other. So I'm going to draw from Psalm chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, 26 to 27. You'll see that it's actually very related. In Psalm 4, it reads this. Answer me. This is King David, by the way, speaking in a place of very great frustration. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. By the way, I'm skipping the word Selah because it's just a pause word. Um, sorry, Selah. It's a good word. Um, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, here's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. So when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says those words, he's directly quoting Psalm chapter 4 and King David. The, the two passages help us understand the other. And it, taken together, it gives us a picture of the Christian approach to dealing with the pressure of anger that builds up in every life. And let's just face it, every one of us feels that pressure to different degrees on an on almost hourly basis, don't we? Aren't there just so many things that keep ratcheting up the tension you feel in this world? And if you have a naturally judgmental spirit, there's no shortage of targets in the world around you to judge all day long. I can't believe, uh-uh, no, she... And you're just looking around, there's so many things to judge if you have that particular inclination. 
One of the most common reasons we become angry is because we feel that somehow we've been mistreated. Isn't that true? We feel like somehow either other people or life itself has mistreated us, has trampled over our feelings or our rights or our dignity, and we don't really react to that very well. If you think about most of our anger, it's indignation over the way I've been treated. I deserve better than this. There's no way I should be treated this way. Why is my life like this when her life is so much better? And it's, it's really the, the engine that drives our anger is indignation over mistreatment. Here's the interesting thing about anger, though. Anger almost always starts out as pain. Okay? Anger almost always starts out as pain. No one wants to be mistreated. No one wants to be belittled or trampled over or neglected. And so we start by saying, something's wrong with the world and the way my life is turning out. Something's not right with the way I was just treated by someone who should treat me better. And I'm hurt by that. And every one of us has been in that place. And that's a critical moment when you are in pain, how you process it, how you react to it, determines whether that pain will lead to anger and something far more damaging or whether you'll find God because you're prompted by that anger to seek him. Listen to what King David says in verse 1. It's, it's the heart's cry of anybody who's been mistreated by other people or by their circumstances. One of the things he says is, answer me when I call. Isn't that part of your, when, when things are happening to you that just don't seem right, isn't one of the first things you ask, why? Usually it's followed by the word me, right? Why me? Why does she have such an easy life and I have such a hard one? Why does he get job offer after job offer and I'm jobless for a year? Oh, why, why, why? And you want answers. And you don't want answers because the answer itself will soothe you. Sometimes the answer will depress you even more. But you just want to know there's a reason for the things that happen. You want to know that life isn't some random accident or that you're not just neglected, forgotten, unknown by God. So you ask why, and it's the heart's cry of everyone in distress. I need answers. Answer. Somebody just tell me you're out there. And then he says, be gracious to me. I think what that means is I need mercy right now. I'm trying to lift this thing by myself, and it's not happening. I think I'm not going to make it. I have come across a burden that I'm just not going to be able to carry by myself. And so the heart's cries, will someone please give me a break? Will someone please help me? Just, just show me a little mercy. Lay off the pressure a little. Just give me one day where I'm not feeling this. Can you just do that for me? Just one day where I get some undeserved mercy, for God's sake. Isn't that what you felt before when you were in distress? Can I just get one day of relief, one time out, just a good day where I can go to bed not feeling angry, beleaguered, just one day. And so we cry out in our hearts, someone, the universe, God, anyone, just be gracious to me. Give me a break. Rescue me. And then finally he says, hear my prayer. It's sometimes a, a very scary feeling when you feel like you're praying and ain't nobody picking up the phone on the other end. Have you ever prayed that way? 
And in the middle of your prayer, you just go, what am I doing? My life is falling apart and I got my eyes closed and I'm just saying words. What power do words? And you start wondering, is anybody actually out there? When I cry out, does anybody feel bad for me and move towards me and reach their hand down for me? And every heart that's ever been in distress has cried out like that, whether to people around them or to God. And what we want to hear is, I'm here. You know, when we were dating, I used to talk to Jeannie, and Jeannie is um, somewhat prone to enjoying her sleep. And there'd be times when I'd be going on, this, this is such a role reversal. It's humbling for me to talk like this. It's usually the guy who's doing this, but um, I'm talking, and then all of a sudden I'll just go, uh, are you still there? <laughs> and it turns out she's been really getting a lot of rest while I've been talking. And, and you know, so you just want to hear it. Um, <clears throat> are you there? Because they've been so quiet. And either they are in rapt attention or they stopped listening a long time ago. So we do that every now and then. We just put out a ping. Are you still there? And you really want to hear back, yeah, I'm still here. Keep talking. I hear everything you say. Those are the heart's cry of anybody who's feeling mistreated by God, by the world, by other people. And they feel like they're in distress. We all felt that at some time. And that kind of feeling, that kind of distress, makes us feel really alone and isolated, doesn't it? That's one of the hard things about pain is, in the midst of your pain, your pain makes you feel really alone because you really are not convinced anyone else gets it. Even when you, with your own words, describe your pain, you know by the look on their face, you still don't really get it, do you? Right? Am I right? You try to tell people what it's like to be in your life, and they're like, Oh, yeah, you know, one time I was like, no, no, never mind what you were. Do you even understand what I'm going through? I'm trying to tell you. But even as I say the words, it doesn't fully reveal what I'm going through. And so you feel alone. Pain always drives a person into isolation. That's just always how it works. Pain pulls you away from community. It makes you feel like you are the only one going through it. And so it drives us to reach out. Now, pain is actually a helpful thing because it's one of those prompts from God, reach out. The the pain will cause you naturally to want to withdraw, but what God is telling you now is in the midst of that feeling, reach up, reach across, reach out to people. Don't do it alone. Don't listen to the lie that your pain means you are all by yourself. That's just never going to be true. And so pain and the isolation that comes with it is an invitation from God Remember me, reach out to me. I will be there for you. David reached out to God, and when he did that in the midst of his distress, what he was doing was inviting God's presence and God's power and God's perspective to come into his life. And that was the most important thing David needed because in the midst of our pain, we don't need to keep rehearsing what we feel. I am mired knee-deep in my own perspective when I'm in pain. I rehearsed the story over and over. Anyone who listened, I'm like, can I just tell you, I, I just met you on the airplane, but can I just tell you, my friend or my husband, oh my gosh. And this person's like, please stop talking. I don't want to hear your story. But you will tell anybody who will listen and you will rehearse and regurgitate the accounts of injustice done against you. And you will do that over and over. The story never changes, but you keep reinforcing and replaying it like a loop. Now, I'm not saying that that's weird you want to do that, but it's totally unproductive if you think about it. Because you already know how you feel, you already know how you think about it, and you're stuck. 
What new stuff is going to come into your life to break the tension? What new perspective is going to come into your life to unravel that knot that's being pulled tight inside of your soul? And that's why it's so important when we're in distress that we reach out to God and when we're unable to do it, that we surround ourselves with friends who have the courage to bring us to God and bring God into our lives. That's not always easy to do, you know. Sometimes we have friends who are in distress and we're like, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what to do about the situation. Your plight is something I can't control. I can't make your marriage better. I can't change your spouse's heart. I can't make that boy not want to break up with you. I can't cure your leukemia. I'm at at my wit's end. Your burden freaks me out. The, The rawness, the intensity of your anger scares me. And as I'm your friend and I'm listening to this, I don't know how to respond to you. Isn't that the way we sometimes feel? What do I do for you right now? Well, can I give you a suggestion as a Christian? One of the greatest, most powerful ways to be a Christ-centered friend to somebody is that when they're seeing red, when their pain and distress causes a fog to settle over their eyes and they cannot see God, the most valuable gift you can give that friend is to remind them of who God is and what he has to say in the midst of that. And they will punish you for doing it very often. Oh, Bible, is all you got. You're going to quote Bible verses at me? Yes, because the word of God is a double-edged sword. It's powerful. It cuts to the heart and the soul, the marrow. It is the most powerful thing I've got. What else do you want from me? Do you want Freudian psychoanalysis? Do you want money? What do you, what do you want from me? Because the truth is, as a Christ-centered friend, the most potent thing I can offer you, even when you have no appetite for it, is to remind you of something you've forgotten because of your pain. That there was a time when you knew God loved you. That he was faithful, he was powerful, and yet that is still true today no matter what you've gone through. And a courageous and faithful friend won't just watch you vent and be like, dang right, let's kill him together. Girl, go on, your husband is a pig. I'm going to kick him too next time I see him. You know, look at what what the wise man says in Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. What that's saying is this. There's a desire when you feel like this to just blow a gas and go, just vomit emotionally all over everyone around you. Just like when certain people, you know, um, feel like like they're about to, they don't care about the collateral damage and they're just going to go off. And you're like, whoa, we just crossed the line. I'm really uncomfortable. I'm going home. Like, you know that kind of awkward feeling? And that's what happens sometimes. And you know what's interesting is the name of even Christian friendship in the church. Sometimes that's what we do is we stand by and watch somebody blow a gasket and we join them. We bring nothing of God into a picture that is now very desperately in need of God. There is very little value, guys, to saying to a friend, go on, just let it all out. Spew your venom. Tell me what she did. Go on. What are you going to gain from that experience? You might think you'll feel a little better, but do you really? 
Does it make the tumor any less lethal when you keep talking about the unfairness of cancer? Of course it doesn't. It may think you, you, you may make you feel that way for a moment, but it doesn't because nobody listening has the power to do anything for you. But who has the power to actually step into that pressure and do something in your life? To bring meaning at least to what's happening. Who has the power to do that? Only God. So if you want to know, and this is important as we get older because you don't have time or energy for 80,000 friendships, right? How many, how, how many of you have over a thousand Facebook friends? Losers? Nobody? Come on. All right. Well, anyway, listen, you may have a thousand Facebook friends, but how many people do you see on a given week you really spend time with? You got to be choosy who you call your real friends, right? Like this is the person on my speed dial when I'm hurting. Now look around at that list that you keep, the people that are your go-to knee-jerk people, and ask yourself this, when you are in distress, do those people just slap you in the back and go, go on, spew, spew, vomit, let's do it together? Or are those people who say, listen, I know what you're going through, I'm not going to preach at you, but you need to know that God is still present in this situation. And I'm not saying it because I'm a religious freak, but I'm saying it because I don't know what else to offer you here that's actually going to help you at all. And it takes courage to do that, Because the people who need God's perspective often don't have any desire for it at that moment. You know, here's the difference then. This idea of spewing, the pressure builds up, you just got to let it out no matter how it affects other people. Let me give you a silly illustration, a really crass one that might stick in your memory for a long time. You ever been in a car full of people and somebody's bowel, there's gas accruing, and then they cannot hold it in And they just go, you know what? I don't care about the social awkwardness or the hatred I'm going to incur. I got to let it out. And they lift the leg up and bam, right? Just And you're driving, you're like, you almost black out. You're about to crash the car. What is that? Now, here's the thing. When you're in a crowded car with the windows closed, farting is a very private thing until you do it. And then it becomes a very public issue. It's no longer just your business because now you've invaded my business with your business. Isn't that right? But when the pressure builds up, what are you going to do? You're, you're like, I know this is going to cost me a lot socially, but I got to go. And you just let it out. And all of a sudden, everyone around you is deeply and negatively affected by your release. That's going to stay with you for a long time. I get regular reminders in my family of this dynamic. <clears throat> now, that's not a nice thing, is it, when someone does that? You understand that when you got to go, you got to go. So you, you understand it. You're not hating them for being biological creatures. You're just hating how it feels to be around them as they do it. The minute that happens, what's the first thing you want to do? How many of you are like... Did you eat noodles yesterday? You're not like trying to analyze it, right? The first thing you want to do is like, and you want to open the windows. Why are you opening the windows? doesn't matter if it's 20 below. You're going to open the windows. Why is that? That's right. Because the air inside the system is foul. What you need is not just to blow and recirculate. See, it's like in the car, okay? You know this button? 
There are times when you want that, when there's like smoke or dead skunk outside. You don't want that outside air coming in, so you protect it. You just restrict it. But when someone lets one go in the car, this is not a happy button. Because all you're doing is taking the foul, toxic air and just waving it around with no place to go. It's just stirring up all the toxic stuff. That's what a rag session is. That's what venting is. It's like spewing your venom, thinking somehow by putting it out there and then waving it around, it's going to make it okay. All you're really doing is sharing the foulness with others. You're multiplying the negative impact of your pain, but it's got no place to go. Just remember that next time you're tempted to just get together and rag all day long and see nothing of God in the midst of your distress. What you really need is that button. You got to let in something new, something fresh, something that isn't tainted by the toxicity of your closed system. When your heart is full of bad, foul things, you don't need to just recirculate that foulness. What you need is to bring God and his freshness into that. And that is what a good friend will do. That is, that's the value of community. The value of community is that sometimes every one of us will lose our way and will stumble about because the pain and the anger are so great that I can't see my way back to God. I don't know what God has to do with this situation. And in that moment, the community rallies around and doesn't say, that a boy, hey girl, we're with you. It doesn't, it's not just about that. It's about saying, hey, the one thing that makes this community different than all others is that we remember God has never left us. He still has a purpose in all of this. There's meaning to be found in front of God that you won't find out there. And so I will speak about God to you right now because you can't see him on your own. It's okay to try commiserating, but that's not what people in pain and anger need most. They don't need your commiseration. They need the reminder that God still has a plan for their lives, that God is still faithful, his promises still have power. That's what they need to hear. Here's another interesting thing, okay? But I really hope that fart illustration will haunt you for years. It's just my way of sneaking in the truth that you won't forget. Um, Here's what Paul then picks up, what King David says, and he begins to expand a little bit on the way it works, the dynamics of all this. The first thing he says is, be angry And do not sin. That's what David said. This is what Paul picks up. Why is that the first thing? Because here's what I think. I've been been dwelling on the nature of anger for about two weeks now, turning it over my mind. How would I explain anger to an alien? What exactly is that emotion? And here's what I think at one level anger is. Anger is pain weaponized. Okay? Let me say that again. I think anger is when pain becomes weaponized. When you begin with, man, my life stinks. Everything's so unfair. Woe is me. And it begins with pain and self-pity. But one day you realize nobody else gives a rip about me. And so then the pain morphs into something darker. The pain morphs into a desire to share the experience with others. Because if you can't get me, then at least you've got to feel what I feel. I'm going to spread my pain. I'm going to project it out at you. Because that's the only way I'm going to feel better. So I believe that pain, unresolved, unredeemed, ferments into anger every time. 
and it's now when the pain is so great, I can't bear to hold it inside and carry it, I'm going to throw it right at somebody because you deserve to be hurt too. I don't even care anymore what that says about me because I am fried. I'm done. I'm, I'm through trying to be the bigger person. I am so angry and so hurt. I don't care who else hurts with me. I think that's what happens in the human heart is that pain ferments into a weaponized kind of thing. And, and really all anger is is a desire to share pain, a desire to find retribution and revenge, which we've all learned but still don't believe doesn't work. Right? Revenge never makes you feel better, but you're going to keep trying until maybe one day, the thousandth try, it's going to make you feel better. It never does. So what he says is, look, it's okay to feel that, but you've got to deal with it very soon. The minute you sense your pain has morphed into anger, you've got to bring that to God, because if you don't, unlike wine or cheese or kimchi, anger is not something that ferments very well over time. If you leave it alone, it's going to become something very toxic and destructive in your life. And the one person who most will be imprisoned by it is you. The person who hurt you has moved on. They're laughing, dancing, living their lives, and you're still wallowing in this self-imposed prison of unforgiveness, unrelease, because you never brought that anger and pain anywhere. You just stirred it up in a closed car, and now everything smells like that stuff. And God says, you got to open the window soon. You've got to bring me into it because if you don't bring me into your pain and your anger, something very, very bad is going to happen. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to want to sin. Pain has a way of making us feel entitled to cause pain to others. It makes us all callous. Like there's normal people, when you say, oh, that's going to hurt them, you're like, oh, sorry, I didn't. But, you know, when you're, when you're angry, when you're hurt, and you're walking even down the, down the train station and you bump somebody, I don't care. Here's an elbow jerk, you know, because it makes you callous. It makes you, it turns off that natural switch that makes you regard other people's welfare. And you say, if no one cares about me, why should I care about anyone else? And as a result, what happens is you stop thinking that I'm going to restrain my behavior because it might hurt you. I really don't care. In fact, I almost hope it hurts you. I do. Because somebody should hurt along with me. And so he says, that's the thing that pain and anger does. It gives you this, this illusion that you have permission to sin now. Go get drunk. Go ahead. Swear like a sailor. Break something. Have an affair of your own. Go do it. Get a little revenge. Kick life between the legs because why not? That's all that ever happens to you anyway. Who cares about other people? I've experienced, I'm talking about it now like somebody described it to me. I have felt and thought those very things many times in my life. And I know you have too. And so we have to hear these words from God. I know you're going to want to go off and sin and think that everyone would understand. But God says, I don't understand that. That's not the answer for you. You're different than that. Be angry, feel it, but don't think for a moment that gives you license to do whatever you want to the world around you. Instead, he says, bring it to me. I'll take that heat, that pressure, and I will actually do something to make it easier to bear. He also says, do not let the sun 
go down on your anger. Now, for years, what I took that to mean practically is whenever Jeannie and I got into an argument, I would not go to bed until we had reached some point of resolution or the ability to move on to the next day. I think that's not a bad practical application, but I think it means much more than that. I think what he's trying to say is he's giving a little urgency to this idea that if you don't deal with anger, it's not just a steady progression down. It's geometric. It's, it, it takes a very sharp and sudden dip. You can go from not being crazy about your spouse to wanting to leave them in a matter of 24 hours. You say, no, that's not possible. That's too abrupt. I've seen it. It's possible. See, the human heart is not so predictable. It's not a machine that runs on this gradual timetable. It is so fickle that if you don't deal with the toxic stuff, it's like the person who just keeps smoking and goes, you know, eventually I'll quit. Well, you might not get to decide when it's too late. It's just the nature of it. You might have that one extra 24-hour period of anger, and it will calcify in your heart, and something permanent will happen. So he says, don't think you can just go to bed and tomorrow time will make it go away. It won't. Anger is a poison in the heart. And if it's not dealt with in the presence of God, it will produce something very destructive in your life and in the lives of those around you. There is no other. It's like you pull the grenade, the pin on a grenade, and you're like, I'll just see what happens tomorrow. It's like going to bed with a landmine and hoping to God you don't roll over in your sleep. Time does nothing for anger except make it worse. It turns it into something called bitterness, rage, evil. That's why sometimes when you don't know how to see God, hit the fresh air button, you've got to turn to the friends who don't just stoke the flames of your anger. I've seen this way too many times, even here where we think we're being a good friend, but actually we were helping destroy a person's heart by giving them a safe place to be at their lowest, their worst. That's not loving. That's not what we call grace. That's watching someone kill themselves and doing nothing. I'm going to tell you right now, when you see somebody in the grips of anger that wants to destroy them and then everything around them, you do not just go, yeah, just let it all out. You say to them, I know what you're feeling. If you need to vent, you go and say it, but you need to hear that God is still in it. He still wants to get pleasure and glory from your life. He still has a purpose for you. Can I show you what God's word says? And if really, that, those are the moments for me as a pastor, it forces this issue. Do you really believe in the inherent supernatural power of God's word? That is more than the persuasive logic of those words, but that something about God's word is qualitatively different than all other words. And there are times when I share the word of God in faith and I see a power I can't explain. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it says in Matthew, and I'm thinking the whole time they're going to punch me in the face for quoting Matthew right now. You know, it's like so unwelcome. But I share it in faith, and I see the word of God accomplish what my persuasive logic could not. The word just breaks them. It heals them. It reorients their heart, and I can't explain that. And really pushes the, the issue, is what you are to a person just a buddy, a pal, a girlfriend, or are you a sister or a brother in Christ? 
Well, it's, it's not, that's not determined just by how you feel about that person. It's determined by what you do when they need you most. And I want to encourage you, do a gut check. Think about the, what you bring into your friends' lives when they are at their lowest moments in their greatest anger and pain. Finally, it says, if you don't deal with this decisively, what's going to happen is that our enemy, the devil, will gain an opportunity. Or in the NIV, I like the NIVs much better. It says, he'll gain a foothold. Climbers, raise your hands. And you're like, well, I climb, but I wouldn't call myself a climber. Don't be humble. If you've ever climbed anything that's not, <laughs> that's not a ladder, raise your hand. Okay. So you climbers amaze me. Because when, when I look at a rock face, what I see is a little na- fingernail with sliver, a wrinkle in the rock, and a climber goes, oh, yeah, that'll hold my weight. And they put their foot on it. like, what? A good climber can support their body weight on something as thin as your fingernail with the very tip of their toe. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Because really, a good climber doesn't need much to gain purchase. What, what Paul's saying is the devil's a good climber. He's always looking for a hook, something he can sink into. And when you leave anger fermenting in the refrigerator, the shelf of your heart... That's all the opening he needs. He doesn't need a white, he doesn't need you to make a pentagram in your living room floor and light candles and sacrifice to go and say, Satan, come and dominate. He doesn't need that. That's too obvious. Which one of you is going to actually do that? All he needs is, I like the way this anger feels. I, I like the burn. I like the fantasy of watching them get run over by a truck over and over in my brain. It's awesome. I, I got it on a permanent loop. In fact, I'm killing him right now while I'm talking to you. Just, oh, it's so good. And that's what you're thinking is revenge, retribution, payback. And you're leaving it like that because somehow it's become your new identity. I'm just an angry, ticked off person. That's what I am. I'm the victim of this group. I am whatever, X, Y, Z. And you don't realize what it's doing to you. It doesn't take much to take a person who once loved Jesus and turn them into somebody who's a bitter, foul, rebellious, lost, wandering soul who has nothing left home, left the father that saved them, left the family that loved them, all because of what? Untended anger. It's sure you can fill that up with hobbies and new purchases, vacations. But do you know what it's costing you to give the enemy even that little ledge of a foothold? He doesn't need much to grab on. And once he grabs on, Each movement, like a python or a constrictor, causes his coils to tighten. I don't describe this theoretically. I describe it because I've walked with people where I've watched that slow story unfold in their lives. And I have the luxury of points of reference. I knew where they were once. I remember who they were. I remember the words they said to me, the earnestness in their eyes. And then I see them today and I think, what happened between then and now? And I know what happened. Anger was left untended, hidden from God. God, don't touch this. This is my own story. This is my own pain. It's, it now defines me. And where God is not, the enemy is. It's as simple as that. You push God out of the room, it won't stay empty. Someone else will move in. And I know that's where some of us are. 
My challenge in love to you is it's never too late to get in front of God and hit the fresh air button. Say, all right, I already know what I feel, but God, come do something here. Show me something more, different, better than what I've been wrestling with all my life. Let me finish this thing off just by showing you this one last verse in, in that passage from Psalm. David is saying this. One of the best ways to process that feeling of anger and hurt is not to run into the arms of others, but just to sit quietly before God. That's why the word Selah keeps popping up there. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. It's, no one quite knows exactly what it means, but the way it's used seems to be a holy pause, a drawing of a deep breath so that the things we just said can sink in. That's amazing. That's an incredible word. It's an incredible name. It means pause, breathe, and let God's truth sink in. Sometimes when you ponder deeply in front of God in the midst of that storm in your heart, he'll ask you a question, just like he asked Cain. Remember when Cain was indignant because Abel got a better reaction from God? He goes, why are you so angry? Talk about a powerful question. Remember Jonah sitting under that vine? And God says, really, do you have a right to be so angry? These are the kind of questions God asks us when we pause long enough to ponder. Why are you so angry right now? And sometimes that question, pondered and answered in front of God, will unlock your heart. He'll change you if you pause long enough to ask and be asked, why am I so angry? And sometimes what we need is the guiding light of community, courageous, faithful, filled friends, faithful friends, who even though you yell at them, push them away, punish them for trying to help, they will still keep bringing you back to God. Anyone will let you vent, but a brother or sister in Christ will bring you back to our Father, will tell you there's hope and actually mean it. I pray that we will be that kind of friend to one another, that God will surround us with faithful friends like that. And I hope that the next time you sense anger welling up, that you will deal with it decisively and early. Don't leave it sitting. Take care of it. If you need help, reach out. There are many in this church who will be willing to walk with you through that very jagged road. Why don't we pray? You know, even though this is a very public sermon, I think the issues we're talking about here this morning are very deep and personal. I think some of us in this room right now have some pain and bitterness and anger issues going on that have a long, long history. And maybe for you, you you're wondering, is it possible, even at this late stage, to do anything about that? It's water under the bridge it's become part of the folklore of my life. I, I don't know who I'd be without that story of pain and anger. But I, I think God is inviting you today to say, even today, he can bring something fresh back into that life. And so I think we should invite him to do that. I don't know where you are as you hear this, but I think God 
may want to say something to you, so why don't we spend a couple minutes listening to our own hearts and then listening for God's voice and see what he prompts as a response in us. Let's do that for a couple minutes. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge very openly Life in this world often makes us feel really angry and hurt. We also acknowledge that for some of us, we don't know what we can do to make that any better. We can't control the circumstances and the people around us who just keep causing pain and frustration. Every time we look at them, we grow more hopeless. And so we ask you would help us to try something new and come to you. And God, help us to come to you with an open heart and with humility, not dictating what you have to do for us, but just coming as children would come to a father to see what father will do. We pray whenever we do run to you, that you will honor the promise of your word, that you are a strong tower and those who run to you will be saved. Rescue us from the destructive power of our anger unrestrained. The way that will affect everyone around us and cause even more pain in our lives. Deliver us from the sharpness of our judgment, our deep desire for revenge, the numbness that wants to settle over our hearts, the coldness that pushes others away. Make our cold and dead hearts come back to life whenever we are wrestling with anger. Lend us your heart when our hearts are failing us. Somehow, at our church, knit together a true community that is able to weather the storms of anger. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.